On a sunny Sunday after, Saturday afternoon in September of 1846, two little shepherd children, Melanie, age 14, and Maximin, age 11, were herding cattle on the mountainside of La Salette when they came across the Blessed Mother of God. Our Lady was sitting there, bathed in brilliant light, seated on a rock, holding her face in her hands. And they realized at once that she was weeping. There sat the Blessed Virgin Mary, weeping, tears streaming down her face. Why was Our Lady crying? She was weeping over a Catholic people, pouring out bitter tears and prophesying that a judgment of destruction was going to befall them. What did she say? Quote, If my people do not wish to submit themselves, I am forced to let go of the hand of my son. It is so heavy and weighs me down so much that I can no longer keep hold of it. How long a time do I suffer for you? If I would not have my son abandon you, I am compelled to pray to him without ceasing. And as to you, you take no heed of it. However much you pray, however much you do, you will never make up for the pains I have taken for you. Close quote. Our Lady weeping bitter tears because Catholics would not submit themselves. But what were they refusing to submit themselves to? They were refusing to submit themselves to two of the commandments of God. She's weeping over Catholic people who wouldn't stop blaspheming and who wouldn't keep the Lord's day holy. And she's prophesying that a judgment of destruction was going to fall upon them. What judgment fell upon mankind? Well, in 1917, Our Lady came back this time to Fatima and told those shepherd children that the war, World War I, was a punishment for sins. Which sins? The saintly Cardinal Mercier said, World War I was a punishment for not having heeded the message of Our Lady of La Salette. World War I, a war in which millions upon millions of men were killed, a punishment for blasphemy and not keeping holy the Lord's day, a punishment for breaking the second and third commandments. God hates sin, and his commandments are commandments, not suggestions. Now this ought to give us all pause to stop and consider. If breaking the second and third commandments can bring down such judgment on nations, what might it do to us? Let's take a closer look at both those commandments this morning. We'll start with a second commandment. Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God in the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for God will not hold him guiltless that shall take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God commands that his name be honored and treated with reverence. The Catechism of the Council of Trent lists a variety of ways by which God's name is honored. God's name is honored first when we publicly proclaim him to be our Lord and our God. Second, when we reverently study 
read, listen to, or think about his holy scriptures. Third, when we praise and thank him for all things. Fourth, when we pray to him. And fifth, when for serious and just reasons we take a solemn oath, we are also honoring his holy name. Let's take a moment on that. What exactly is an oath? That's easy. An oath is something we swear to the truth of and call upon God as our witness. We're testifying to the truth of a statement and we swear it with words like, so help me God, by God, with God as my witness, or similar expressions. According to St. Alphonsus, there are three necessary conditions which must be present for us in order to lawfully call upon God as our witness. In other words, in order for us to lawfully take an oath. The first condition is it must be true. What we're swearing to has to be true. We're asking God to witness to the truth of it. Second, we have to use judgment. An oath isn't to be taken lightly, but only after due deliberation and reflection. It's not a spur-of-the-moment thing. And third, there has to be justice in the oath. An oath is sinful if someone swears to do something unjust or unlawful. Like Herod with his silly oath about the half of the kingdom, and he winds up lopping off St. John the Baptist's head to please Solomon. That's certainly not just. So for an oath to honor God's name, it must be true, sworn after sufficient judgment, and concerned with matters that are just. So let's review. How do we honor God's name? By publicly proclaiming as our Lord and God. By reverently reading, studying, thinking about, listening to his holy scriptures. By praising and thanking him for all things or praying to him. Or by swearing just oaths. Just oaths that must be true. They must happen after sufficient judgment. Be concerned with matters that are just. Now what does the second commandment prohibit? First, perjury. Swearing a false oath. Calling God as a witness to a lie is an extremely heinous crime. And some of our so-called leaders might think it's all fun and games to perjure themselves, but unless they repent, they're not going to die laughing. Second, unjust oaths, like in a vendetta, when a man swears to kill another man. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Third, a rash oath, which is just swearing an oath for a frivolous, silly, or stupid reason. Fourth, irreverent speech about holy things. Now this is increasingly commonplace. Unbelievably enough, what was once the specialty of Freemasons, heretics, and atheists is now heard from the lips of many practical Catholics as they make fun of incidents in Holy Scripture. They make fun of the saints. They make fun of our religious, especially beloved nuns of a few generations ago, or they mock pious practices of other Catholics. Fifth, blasphemy. As the Catechism of the Council of Trent states, quote, Still more enormous is the guilt of those who with impure and defiled lips dare to curse or blaspheme the holy name of God, that name which is to be blessed and praised above all measures by all creatures. Close quote. Catechism of the Council of Trent. As God himself warns us in his very commandment, the Lord will not hold him guiltless that shall take the name of the Lord as God in vain. So the second commandment commands us to honor God's name by publicly proclaiming to be our Lord or God, 
by reverently reading or thinking about scripture, by praising or thanking him, by praying to him, or swearing just oaths. And it forbids us from committing perjury, making unjust or rash oaths, making irreverent speech about holy things, or blaspheming. Now how about the third commandment? Remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy works, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, thou shalt do no work on it. Now as we know, the apostles moved the Jewish Sabbath to Sunday. In this commandment, God commands us, after we reach the age of reason, to hear Mass on Sunday and holy days of obligation. This means that without a just cause, we commit a mortal sin if we miss Mass on any Sunday or holy day of obligation. What is a just cause? Such things as taking care of a sick child, stopping to help someone in trouble, being a good Samaritan, impossibility because of work. For example, a nurse that would have to work Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. She's certainly not guilty of missing Mass on Christmas. Impossibility because of location. If you live in the Alaskan bush, you're not missing Mass. So the third commandment commands us to hear Mass on Sundays and Holy Days obligation. Okay, what does this commandment forbid? Two things. Unnecessary servile work and most forms of public commerce. Unnecessary servile work is forbidden. So what's servile work? It's the sort of work traditionally done by manual laborers. It includes such things as plowing, digging, drilling seed, gardening, lawn mowing, mechanicing, welding, loading, plastering, house painting, folding laundry, ironing, sewing. It's very important for us to realize that servile work is determined by an objective standard, God's. That means that what we like or don't like has no part to play in the equation. As the moral theologian Davis writes, quote, Servile work may not be done without necessity for pleasure or recreation. It remains servile, whatever the motive may be, even if no wages are taken for it. Close quote. Or as St. Alphonsus says, quote, The intention of the worker is not able to change one form of work into another. Close quote. St. Alphonsus points out that if someone does more than two to two and a half hours of unnecessary servile work on a Sunday, a holy day obligation, he's guilty of a mortal sin. Why does God forbid servile work on all Sundays and holy days of obligation? Simply so that we will relax read good spiritual books, and recuperate body and soul so that we might better serve both him and our neighbor. Okay, now what about commerce? What's forbidden here? Generally speaking, public trading, markets, public buying and selling, like going out grocery shopping or to the mall, are forbidden. There are certain exceptions. For example, if on a particular occasion, and not as a general practice, there's a real business opportunity that would be lost, public business, can be done, like in the case of a vendor during a fair that would uh, over August 15th, or the case of a vendor at the racetrack on three or four su- su- uh, Sundays a year. Those would be an ex- examples of that. It's also important to know that going to a restaurant or a cafe has always been permitted. We don't need to have any scruples about that, and also buying fuel is all right. 
So we see that unnecessary servile work and most forms of public commerce are forbidden on Sundays and Holy Days obligation. What's permitted? Other kinds of works, such as what used to be called the liberal works, those are things that were traditionally done by those in the leisurely class. Things like singing, reading, uh, studying, writing, oil painting. Also common work that's common to all classes of men. Traveling and preparing a meal. Necessary servile work, necessary servile work like feeding livestock, changing a flat tire, setting up the altars for Corpus Christi procession and so forth are of course permitted as are the type of people using or working for necessary public services, like the police, fire, medical uh, personnel, taxis or the travel industries, drug stores, gas stations or restaurants. Also, playing or attending sporting events or going hunting are fine, as long as they're kept in the proper perspective as a legitimate recreation for the Lord's Day and not as being more important than God himself. Obviously, we don't live in a Catholic state, so many times it's impossible for us to escape working on some of these times, especially when a holy day of obligation falls during a work week. As faithful Catholics, we want to show God that we love him. As we saw last week, God expects us to show that love for him by our acts of adoration, and especially by our interior life of adoring and praising him. Why? Because he's all good and worthy of all our love. God expects us to show that love for him by our words, by carefully honoring his name and keeping it holy. God expects us to show him that we love him not simply with our interior disposition and not simply with our words, but also by what we do with our bodies. At the dawn of the third millennium, we find ourselves awash in the sewage of the degenerate culture of death. Perhaps we've been floating in the current rather than moving against it. We may indeed need to carefully reset some of our priorities in order to faithfully observe the first, second, and third commandments. Are we willing to give God his due, our thoughts, words, and deeds? Let's end with some reflections from Our Lady of La Salette. If my people do not wish to submit themselves, I am forced to let go of the hand of my son. It is so heavy and weighs me down so much that I can no longer keep hold of it. How long a time do I suffer for you? If I would not have my son abandon you, I am compelled to pray to him without ceasing. And as to you, you take no heed of it. However much you pray, however much you do, you will never make up for the pains I have taken for you. Each one of us needs to ask himself, would she say this to me? Is she crying over me?